Spending quality time with God is uh, the title for our talk today and it's a continuation of our Luke series. So we're going to take a reading to begin with from Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 and verse 38 is where we're going to start and the reading will flow then into chapter 11. So Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. And then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was uh, a system by which people number of years ago, back in the 17th century, were encouraged to learn the key things about the Christian faith by a system of questions that then had written responses and people would learn that. And this was when people didn't necessarily have the skills to be able to read God's word for themselves. So they would learn the truths about God and God's word in a question and answer form. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer that some of you will know, um, maybe you've heard it before, or certainly if I'd asked that question 300 years ago, people would have been straight back and said, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That was the scene setter for the rest of the questions and answers that were to follow. The recognition that God who is the creator of all things, the beginning of all things, is also obviously, though it's not obvious to us, 
obviously is the source of all that is good and therefore the source of joy. Why do we have a question and answer catechism in the first instance that needs to remind us of this? It's because as sinners, we've turned away from giving glory to God that is due to his name and enjoying him. Other things now occupy our time and our attention and we go to them because they're quicker and easier and we think that in them we have satisfaction and joy. But quite often we know for ourselves the joy is a fleeting thing. As sinners, we have turned away from God. We do not give him the glory that is due to his name. Adam and Eve, the culmination of God's glorious creation, as we see it depicted in Genesis 1 and 2, in the Garden of Eden, everything was very good when humanity comes in. Why? Because God had made them in his image that they might be there as a representative of him there and to rule over everything that God had made. And God said to them, do this. And in doing this, it will bring glory to me. But there were conditions attached to that. And Adam and Eve decided that the conditions weren't worth honouring. And in so doing, did not glorify God. And in so doing, fell into sin. Thinking that there was something else to be had outside of God that would bring an even greater joy than a relationship with him in the first place. We can't point the finger at them and say, what were they thinking? Because we're exactly the same. The Bible says that it's our natural state now as sinners to not glorify God and to not find enjoyment in him. But rather, we go after other things that are the things that God has made that point towards him, but we don't see that. And we find joy in them, which is limited rather than in the one who has made them for us. Sin within us, Satan who is outside of us, and the world that is outside of us too and is a a system that is evil, that is set against the things of God because we're all evil. And the Lord said that to his followers, you, though you're evil, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts. The Lord doesn't mince his words. These were his closest followers. He says, you're evil. Why? Because evil is, is occupying yourself with something else other than God. Sin, Satan, and the world system conspire to keep us from seeking after the glory that God deserves in the way that we live. And instead, we will fill our time with distractions. And in fact, It's one of the greatest works of Satan who has set against God's things, I think, in our present age to distract people because distraction is the enemy of listening and productivity and all sorts of things. And distraction keeps us from what should really occupy us, which is God himself. But the truth of this is that God, in his grace and his mercy toward us, hasn't then just said, right, I'm going to leave you to it, but in his mercy and in his grace, has said, I'm going to reveal myself to you in unmistakable ways. Creation, just stop and have a look. That's not enough. He then gives us his word. He communicates with us. 
And that seemingly is not enough. And these last days, Hebrews 1 says, he has given us his son. He's spoken to us through him. He gives us himself. When he comes into humanity, God the eternal son becomes a man, the person Jesus Christ. And he reveals in his life and in his death and in his resurrection who he is. And God then can awaken the minds that are blinded and darkened by sin and distracted by so much to see the glory of who he is and to realize that we've fallen short of God's glory. All have sinned and fall short of his glory and fail to give him the glory that's due to his name, but there was one who did and it was Jesus. And by faith in his righteousness and his glorifying life of God, that which we can't do ourselves, which is to glorify God, in our sinful state, is then dealt with by faith, we accept that Christ is the one who has died so that our sins might be forgiven and we might be given a new life in which we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. God gives himself to us and those who know him then have the joy of spending time with him. This is the wonderful truth of what it means to be a Christian. And we're going to see today that there is no greater priority that we can have than to get to know the God who knows us. And Paul said that, that I, I've, there's no greater thing than to know him. And then he, says, he stops. And because he didn't have a delete button then, it just seems as though he qualifies that and says, rather to be known by him, he carries on with. There's nothing better than knowing that God knows us. And in God knowing us, he brings us into the delight and the joy of knowing him and glorifying him in life. I want us to think today about listening carefully to God through his word. Listening to the things that God says. The word of God is described as the living and active or the living and active abiding word of God. There's life to it because it's from God himself. Listening carefully, thinking deeply about him in soul-filling meditation. And let's not run away from the word meditation as if it's all associated with Eastern religion, which is emptying your mind. That's not what biblical meditation is. For the Christian, meditation is rather filling ourselves or allowing God to fill us with himself as we spend time in his word. Listening carefully to what God says, thinking deeply about what it is that he gives to us of himself, and then speaking honestly with him in life-shaping prayer. Because I believe that prayer is that which shapes us to be more like Jesus. We can read and read and read. But unless we're before God, to allow him to show us those aspects of our character that do not match those of Jesus Christ and honestly ask for his help to put them to death by the Spirit, as Paul describes it in Romans 8, there's little change. So the three, I think, are vital. Listening, meditating, and honest praying to God. You know, Luke's record has fascinated me as we've gone through our study. I hadn't seen it this way before. How Luke under the superintendence of God the Spirit, 
has taken all that he has gathered in his historical research and then to put it in an order that means that there is a flow and an intention in the book. It's wonderful. So what we have here is connected with what went before and is connected with what went after. And for me, I think I've come to an understanding that Luke's whole account, while it does point us to Christ, of course, the other purpose of it is that we might learn what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. And this little section that we've dipped into today is almost the sharp point of it. What does it really mean to be a disciple? Remember last week we had the man asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we thought about the business of not doing for salvation, but doing as a consequence of salvation, that we might glorify God in our lives and in so doing enjoy him. Here we, it comes even sharper to those who were part of Jesus' close-knit friendship group. And the instruction that Luke gives us that God is giving us by the Spirit's work in this is it's all to do with what it means to be a disciple. Luke, you'll notice five times in, in this little section, switches back to using the term Lord there. And that's important because when Luke is using the word Lord as a, as a reference to Jesus in either the things that are said to him or even the things that Jesus says himself or his own description of who Jesus is, He's wanting us to realize you don't just go around calling people Lord for the fun of it. You're, you're giving the due glory to Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. And I think when he uses that, that title of who Jesus is in his writings, it's for us to stop as, as believers and realize, well, here's teaching about what it means to be a disciple. So we've got this little incident uh, with, in the home of Martha and Mary. And verses 38 to 42 of chapter 10, which brings us to, to face up to the priority of what it means to be a Christian, the priority of a disciple. And I've put it this way, to experience God by being an enthralled disciple of Jesus. Jesus Christ has been revealed to us to be the eternal Son of God. He is God, fully God. But God has spoken to us in these last days in his Son so that we might be able to understand God in ways that relate to our physical humanity as well as our um, extra-physical human reality as well. What grace of God that he has come to be with us. To experience God by being an enthralled disciple of Jesus. Seeing him as a man, which helps us as human beings, then should be, I believe, the greatest priority. And th this is to us as individuals today. I've wondered about what the, the setting was like. Uh, you might remember that uh, a few weeks ago we were thinking about the Lord sending out the 72 don't, not exactly sure about the chronology, but there does seem to be a flow here. I've often just assumed that here was the Lord with his close disciples, the twelve, who've turned up. Uh, in Bethany, we, we understand that's where the town was, near Jerusalem, from John's account of a different incident. But this is where Martha and Mary's home was. He turns up, I've always assumed, with just the twelve. But if he, at this point, had another 72 who were close by... 
and maybe a few other stragglers as well who were loving what they were hearing from Jesus Christ. Is it inconceivable to imagine that as they come into the town, Martha says, come, all of you, all 100 of you, uh, I'll open up and take care of you. I just, just a thought to put your direction. We see in Martha, let's not judge her very quickly as being wrong. She does make wrong decisions and we'll see why. But let's not judge her for being wrong. We see a kindness and a love towards the Lord Jesus and his followers because it says that she opened up her home. When you come to the incident in John chapter 11 where Martha and Mary's brother Lazarus dies and the Lord comes eventually to Bethany. Martha's the first one to come out and to meet the Lord and says, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She knew, she knew who Jesus was. And then the Lord challenged her about the matter of, um, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do, do you believe that there is going to be a resurrection? And she said, yeah. And I, I believe you're the source of it. So let's not push Martha too hard here on this one. But we can learn from her because none of us is perfect. And she was a disciple who was learning what it means to be a true disciple, someone enthralled by Jesus who comes to experience God, just like we are. So we do well to learn from her. But you open up your home, whether it be the 13 or whether it be 100, there's a cultural expectation in the Near East at that time and still persists today, that when somebody comes to your home, you provide for them. It's not enough to just welcome them in, sit them down, and then spend a bit of time with them and send them off again. You are expected to provide for them. It still persists in uh, some societies in the world today. You, you know that I go to the Philippines. You go to somebody's home, there is the cultural expectation that there will be provision of whatever they can get to give you. We're not thinking of, of Western um, sanitized um, hospitality here. We're thinking of a, an obligation, not just for the household, but actually for the town. And the household is a representation of the town that here is somebody who's welcomed. You remember the Lord telling the 72, if you're not welcomed, knock the dust off your feet and go against the town. There was an obligation here in their culture to provide. So no wonder Martha, when she opens her home, she knows fully what she's letting herself in for. But the text tells us that she is distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So the preparations had to be made. And what was the problem? She'd become distracted. Then there are two things we're going to look at in this that are important for us. And we have to be careful with the lessons from it. Um, but first one is this, this problem of distraction. And it's a big one. I suffer with distraction so much. And if, if you're anything like me, it's an absolute pain. But a distraction, even the word implies that it is something that takes you away from what it is that you should be focused on. That's, that's why the word distraction is used. And it's here in the text. There was something else that should have been occupying Martha at that time, but she allowed things to distract her. And it was the provision that was expected by the culture. But let's just stop on the distraction for a moment. Something that draws our attention away from that which we should be focused on or working on. Distraction is the enemy of productivity. If you're constantly distracted by things, you never get done the thing that you've set out to get done.
But we as a society, I think, have ended up with such a problem where we actually permit distraction. I didn't bring it with me, my phone's over there. But that thing is such a distraction. And it's a permitted distraction producing thing in my life. Because that thing buzzes and pings and does all sorts of things all day at my permission. And it's a distraction from the things that I should be focused on. Because quite often what it distracts me with is really not worth spending time on. I think it's a little caution for us. Now sometimes even my permitted distraction producing device could be a distraction for other people. Now, there's an important point here about uh, us finding time with God is the, the ultimate reason for this talk. We need to get ourselves, and the Lord said in Matthew, take yourself off into the inner closet. Go and find a, a private place where you can speak with God, the Father. There is a necessity for Christians to get away from the distractions that are things that come at us that would draw us away that we've not permitted, so other things that would come. And also, I think today, to get us away from the very thing that we've permitted to distract us. So in our time in God's Word, or in our time of meditation, or in our time of prayer, we isolate ourselves as best we can. For the glory of God and for the good of our souls, we do it. And we, we protect that environment for the unexpected distraction as best we can. It's impossible. But we also protect ourselves from that which we've permitted. I think that's a vital one for us today. But it reveals something deeper. The whole business of permitted distractions, I think, reveals that as a society and as people, we're all about the quick fix. We're, to spend time with God takes time because God is just so incredibly beyond our understanding. And his word is tough to understand. It's so much easier to grab something else and to then allow that to distract us. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. And then you go back. Oh, where was I, God, with you? Um, we have this inbuilt propensity for the quick fix, and that's our sin. And Satan knows all about it. But you know, when Satan came to tempt the Lord Jesus in the wilderness, he didn't get the reaction from Jesus that he gets from us. Because Satan came and said, um, look, you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. The Lord was hungry, he'd been fasting for 40 days. The Lord didn't respond to the adversary's attempts to distract him and to fall into sin. He didn't do it. And so with the other two as well. Here was Satan coming with the intention of distracting and taking away the glory of what we know. Now, it didn't happen, of course, but in us it happens frequently. That the easy option for the Lord was not taken by the Lord because he knew there was hard work to go through, which was the cross. And that was his ultimate purpose. And he wasn't going to be distracted or deflected from that at all. No quick fix 
to save us. So in the matter of us coming to glorify God and to enjoy him forever by understanding him better, there's no quick fix for it. We need to give ourselves to time with God. Now, there's something else in this about Martha that that is a a subtle and debilitating sin that's in all of us. And it's revealed by the Lord's response. When she comes, Lord, I'm doing all this on my own. Mary's just sitting at your feet. Will you tell her to get up and come and help me? The Lord's response exposes a sin that's underneath it. She had allowed herself to become distracted, but there was sin involved. And the sin is that she was caring more about what people were going to think of her and her household than caring more about spending time with Jesus. The Bible word for that is pride. That's the sin of caring more about what we might look like to others than realizing that we can have an audience with the creator of the universe. Mary's sitting at the Lord's feet. She's sitting there and the Lord's response to Martha is loving. Martha, Martha. The two times he appeals to her, it's in love. He says, you're worried and upset about many things. He was referencing all that she's trying to do. You're worried and upset about all these things. Yes, I'm an honored guest. Greatest guest you'll ever have in in your home. Uh, But you're worried and upset. Now, worry and upset and anxiety and fretting and so on. It's not because she was wanting to impress Jesus, I don't think. It was because of this cultural expectation that was on her and her household that there's so much to do for these people. Maybe there was something of wanting to look good to Jesus. We can't do anything of ourselves that look good to Jesus. We accept from him what it is that makes us good. Do do you get the the point? I think the Lord's response here is, is clear. Listen what he goes on to say. A few things are needed. So he's actually saying, maybe you're going a little over and above here. And then he qualifies, or indeed only one. Now, he doesn't qualify what the one thing is, but I think the implication is from the context that it's listening to him. There's one thing that's needed. That's your priority. And then he says, Mary has chosen what is better. That is the sense of the Greek, that there, were, there was a, a choice situation here, and Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. He says, I'm not going to tell her to get from where she is sitting at my feet listening. Don't take this away from her. And what she receives now will not be taken away from her at any point in the future. Martha, get over trying to look good in front of others. Get that out of your system. Just do what's necessary and don't miss out on listening to me. I think that is what the Lord is getting at. The sin was preventing her discipleship. Discipleship being enthralled by Jesus so that we might enjoy God more. She's more concerned about working on her own than missing out and sitting at Jesus' feet. Mary, on the other hand, at this moment, is more concerned about what Jesus is saying than what other people think of her. She couldn't care less. 
about the cultural expectation at this moment. Why? Because this is Jesus. Maybe we need to pull ourselves up a little on this. Jesus commends Mary's choice in that moment not to be caught up with all of the stuff. David in Psalm 24 says, One thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Now David was a flawed man, just like Martha was a flawed woman, just like you and me are flawed people. But here he, he spent time to write something down that his aspiration was to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to see his beauty in the temple. Now, the temple wasn't built when David was around. So what was he talking about? I wondered this week. On the basis of what we're told in 1 Chronicles 28 and 10, when David's passing on the plans of the temple to Solomon, he says, all this, David said, I have in writing as a result of the Lord's hand on me, and he enabled me to understand all the details of the plan. There was a time in David's life when the Lord's hand was on him to reveal to him the glory of a temple that was going to be constructed in Jerusalem. And all the details were there of all the glory that then was physically put in place by Solomon. How did he get that? Quality time with God, I expect. And as his mind was filled with this, he says, there's nothing greater than this. One thing, Lord, I ask for is that I might gaze on the beauty of who you are in the place where you say your presence will be. <coughs> Sometimes sitting and listening doesn't really feel like doing, and quite often we're doing people. But sitting and listening is where we can experience God. Now, uh, I have to qualify something here. This is not a, a blanket endorsement <coughs> of not serving or not being active. We cannot take that from what we're reading in Matthew, or not in Matthew, in, in Luke with Martha and Mary. The Lord speaks often of faithful and fruitful servants, of people being active and productive and fruitful. So the Lord looks for that in his people. But it's when that service that we can be engaged in, the things that we do, like Martha, have become a distraction that are more about how we look to other people and maybe meeting other people's expectations that we can miss out on Jesus. And in fact, Serving alongside Jesus is probably the best way you can get to know him. Paul said in Colossians that all that you do be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if you've got Jesus with you and he's with you in absolutely everything. So it's not saying we can't separate service out here as being a bad thing. That's not it. It's when our attitude is twisted by it. So there are warnings here for us in this. One is that distraction, what have I written here? When what we do becomes, firstly, a distraction that prevents us from enjoying Jesus rather than being a means of enjoying Jesus, then we need to check ourselves. Or secondly, when what we do becomes a vehicle for self-glory and approval, then we're missing out on the joy of being an enthralled disciple of Jesus who experiences God more and more. The Lord's teaching on prayer. We've been over this before. It's so well known to so many that we're not going to dip into the teaching itself. But there's a link with what's gone before. Did you notice it? 
the, the Lord used, gives the teaching, the form of words, which is what would have been expected by any little group that attaches itself to a rabbi, people would have learned how to pray from the rabbi. So here were the disciples saying, Lord, would you teach us to pray? This is the Lord repeating what he's already given at the Sermon of the Mount. So here was a, an intimate moment with his disciples and they, they've listened to Jesus. They've seen him praying and they realize that they're, they're floundering. Lord, teach us to pray. Just like John taught his disciples to pray, can, can you do the same thing for us, please? And then we have a slightly condensed version of what's known as the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. But after he said that, do you notice the link with what's gone before? He uses the example of a man who's obligated to provide for a guest who comes into his house. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, the Holy Spirit, for stitching it all together in this way. But just very quickly, a summary of the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. I wonder if there's four Ps we can see just to take away. One is, first, you give praise to God. Secondly, you seek the priority of God's kingdom. Third, in our prayers, we request the provision of necessities. And fourth, we request protection from sin. Somebody has said recently in a book that I've read that we should be riffing on the Lord's Prayer every day. Now, riffing is when two guitarists are trading off against each other and, f and so on and doing things a little differently. It's taking a form and, in a sense, just interpreting a little different. It's a fine, fine thing. Rather than just repeating it as, as a thing of rote that you might have learned at school and therefore relegate and say, well, we can't say that. Or we relegate it because it's a thing of liturgy. Um, we don't touch that sort of thing in our church uh, heritage. Let's not relegate the Lord's Prayer. Take it and use it as a structure and form it into your own words. Those four Ps, to praise God, that's where it must start. Secondly, to seek the priority of his kingdom. Thirdly, that we might ask for the provision of necessities. And fourthly, that we would know protection from sin. But then we get the, the example that the Lord uses. The man who has a friend arriving at midnight, how inconsiderate, and he comes in and the man then is obligated to provide for this guest. What does the man do? He goes to the fridge and he finds nothing. So he goes, oh, right. So he goes to his friend and it's midnight and they're all in bed. And it would have been a one-roomed house, most likely. Uh, so knocking on the door, I don't know how that wouldn't have uh, woken everybody, but the man shouts back, what? I'm not getting up. Uh, the kids are in bed as well. This is ridiculous. Um, Look at the time. But that man has become obligated because of the cultural expectation of the near Eastern culture. So he's, right, you're a bit cheeky asking this, but here we go. So he gets up and gives the man what he needs. The Lord uses it as an example and a flow into, because if you look at verse 9, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. The sense of the Greek, and you've heard this before, I'm sure, but if you haven't, is to keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. So the Lord uses that, he gives the, the form of prayer that can be used. Then he gives an example, and then he says, so you keep asking. And it's a contrast example. He says, look, if, if you would expect to go to somebody and they would get up and give you what you need, even though they're asleep, and reluctant to do so, what's it going to be like when you go and speak with your father who never sleeps, who never says, don't bother me, and knows 
even before you ask exactly what you need. Well, here you go, here's, a, here's what you need. The contrast is there. The Lord is saying, don't measure your time with God in human terms. Don't allow your preconceptions and expectations that are based in humanity and how humanity responds to limit what you can enjoy of God yourself. Come to him realizing he doesn't sleep, he won't send you away, and he loves to hear from you and he'll give what you ask if it is according to his will. Then the Lord goes on to give us more help. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake or an egg will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more will your father? He says, you guys, you know that when your child asks you for something, you're not going to give them something that's going to harm them. Neither is your Father in heaven going to do that. There may be circumstances and experience where you're scratching your head and wondering, why on earth is this happening? But he is not going to give you something that is going to harm you. How much more is the Father who doesn't sleep, who's never going to say, don't bother me, who's never going to say, you cheeky person coming and doing this, who has none of that, how much more will your Father in heaven give what? The Holy Spirit. Brings it all back round, Luke does, in bringing these two things together. Sitting at the Lord's feet as Mary was. Martha missing out on that because of sin and distraction. And then the Lord's teaching on prayer to his followers finishes up with, we want to make our home with you. That's what the Lord said in John when he's speaking with the disciples on the night before his crucifixion, he says, you do the things that I'm asking you to do and we will lovingly, my Father and me, will come and make our home with you. And we'll do that through the person of the Holy Spirit. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What does that tell us? That the best prayer we can pray to God is a prayer for God. So how's your commitment to spending time with God at the moment? 2019, the time of review, start January and all that. If we can lift ourselves above human expectations and realize who God is and not get caught up in things that distract, it can transform us for God's glory. Sitting and listening to God through his word, speaking to God and receiving himself from our time with him. As James wrote in James 4 verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. Let's pray.